There once was a man named George Thomas. He was a pastor in a New England, very small town. And one Easter Sunday, he came to the church carrying a rusty old birdcage, and he set it down right by the pulpit. And those in the front rows could see that the little door was open, and yet there were still a couple little birds that sat in the cage as if they were frozen with fear. Eyebrows were raised. And as if in response, Pastor Thomas began to speak. He said, I was walking through town yesterday when I saw a young boy coming toward me swinging his birdcage. And I stopped the lad and asked, what do you have there, son? Just some old birds, came the reply. What are you going to do with them, I asked. Take them home with me and have some fun with them. He answered, I'm going to tease them and pull out their feathers and make them fight. I'm going to have a real good time. But you'll get tired of those birds sooner or later. What will you do then? The pastor asked. Oh, I got me some cats, said the little boy. They like birds. I'll take them to them. The pastor was silent for a moment. How much do you want for those birds, son? Huh? Why, you don't want them birds, mister. They're just plain old feet birds. They ain't even purty. How much? The pastor asked again. The boy sized up the pastor as if he were crazy, and he said, 20 bucks. And the pastor, um, the pastor reached in his pocket, and he took out a $20 bill, and he placed it in the boy's hand, and in a flash, The boy was gone. The pastor picked up the cage and gently carried it to the end of the alley where there was a tree and a grassy spot. And setting the cage down, he opened the door. And by softly tapping the bars, he persuaded most of the birds to fly out, setting them free. Well, that explained the birdcage on the pulpit. And then the pastor began to tell another story. He said, one day Satan and Jesus were having a conversation. And Satan had just come from the Garden of Eden and he was gloating and boasting. Yes, sir, I just caught me a world full of people down there. I set me a trap, used the bait, and I knew they couldn't resist. And I got them all. What are you going to do with them, Jesus asked. (laughs) Satan replied, oh, I'm going to have me some fun. I'm going to teach them how to marry and divorce each other, how to hate and abuse each other, how to drink and smoke and curse. I'm going to teach them how to invent guns and bombs and kill each other. I'm really going to have me some fun. And what will you do with them when you're done, Jesus asked. Oh, I'll kill them, Satan glared. How much do you want for him, Jesus asked. Oh, you don't want those people. They ain't no good. Why, you'll just take them. They'll, you'll take them, but then they're just going to turn on you and hate you. They're going to spit at you. They're going to curse you. They're going to kill you. You don't want those people. How much? Jesus asked again. Satan looked at Jesus and sneered. All your blood, your tears, and your life. That's what I want for those people. And Jesus said, Done.
and he paid the price. The pastor left the open cage and he walked from the pulpit, leaving folks to ponder the birds who still sat in that cage even though the door was open. Romans 6, we learned in so many different ways, it said it so many different ways, that now that we are in Christ, we are done with sin. We've died to sin, 6-2. Our self was crucified, our old self was crucified with him. The body of sin is destroyed. We are no longer enslaved to sin. We are free from sin. You must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to Christ in Christ Jesus. Sin will not reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. Seems to me that Paul is adamant about our freedom. What do you think? Two weeks ago, we looked at all those statements, these facts about the believer in Jesus, and we affirmed together that Jesus did not just die to get us to heaven. He died to give us an abundant life on earth as well. Jesus said as much. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, he said. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And so we talked about how sin does not promote abundant life that Jesus died to give us, in spite of what the world will tell you out there. In fact, sin diminishes life. Sin brings death. (laughs) But thanks be to God. Because of Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, we have abundant life and this freedom from the power of sin. And that's why Romans 6 is so great. Romans 1 through 5 had already told us that we are free from the penalty of sin. So by faith in Jesus alone, we are headed for heaven. (laughs) But only because Jesus took our punishment, he paid that price for us, for all sin on the cross. But now in Romans 6 through 8, we get an even fuller picture that not only are we free from the penalty of sin, but we are free from the power of sin. Verse after verse after verse says how this freedom from the power of sin is ours, and this explains how it is even possible to walk in newness of life, as Romans 6.4 calls us to do, to walk in newness of life. Do you remember why Paul was just taking such great pains to convey that we are no longer enslaved to sin? Do you remember why? We've come so far, I could see how you could forget. Paul was making his case against those who were insisting that grace leads to loose living and reckless sinning. And Paul is saying, no, the opposite is true. So continuing our review now, we were also very clear on the answer to, though, is Paul saying that a Christian never sins? No, you and I know better, (laughs) don't we? God does not rule out our freedom of choice. We can still choose to sin, but we now have the power to choose not to sin. 
However, like the birds in the open cage, many of us have yet to realize our freedom. Well, so today we arrive at chapter 7, and there are differing views on verses 14 to 24, which come directly after what Daniela read for us this morning. Who is Paul talking about when he uses the first person I? The first person pronoun I. Who's he talking about? Let me read that for us. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into slavery under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want to do, but the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. And in fact, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh, I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. And so I find this to be a law, that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, But I see in my members another law at work with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, wretched man that I am. (laughs) Who will rescue me from this body of death? And so the question is stirred. Who is Paul talking about? There's actually several views I'm just going to talk about the two opposite main views. Number one is Paul describing himself in his own present experience as a normal, mature believer that we knew him to be by the time he wrote, that, wrote these words, by the time he wrote Romans. In other words, is this immense struggle with sin a continuing one, even for a Christian? That's the question. Second view, second question is, or is Paul talking about his own past when he was very religious but still didn't know Jesus? This was when he was still called Saul, you may remember or know, when he lived his life as a a Jew, a strict Pharisee living under the law. In other words, is he describing his own struggle at keeping the Old Testament law. And so those are the two main views, and let me tell you this before I tell you mine. (laughs) I know and love people who hold each of these interpretations uh, of this passage, and um, it's a much-discussed passage, and I know and love and respect deeply people of different views. One of them is Pastor Jeff, who holds view one. And I invite you to go online and listen to his sermon of February 19th. It is excellent. Excellent. But one of the many things I love about Pastor Jeff and even the Covenant Church um, denomination is that there is a careful distinction 
um, of the essentials of belief, things clearly stated in Scripture that, that um, we who are members of the Covenant Church must agree on. Those are the essentials, but there's also the non-essentials on which we can agree to disagree. I love the freedom. In fact, differing views on non-essentials are welcomed. We have been given a great amount of freedom to wrestle and to think on those for ourselves. And that being said, I have Pastor Jeff's blessing to teach another view of chapter 7, these verses, which differs from his. I personally, as you've already figured out, hold view 2, that Paul is talking about what life under the law looks like back in his Saul of Tarsus days. If you were with us for the study of Acts last year, you may know that Paul um, was a strict Jewish leader of the Pharisee sect. He was a legalist, and he was zealous for the Old Testament law. He was so zealous that he went around persecuting Christians who had embraced Jesus as their Savior until one day, traveling on the road to Damascus with the intent of killing followers of Jesus, Paul, who was called Saul back then, was blinded by the bright light of the presence of Jesus himself. Who asked Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul responded, who are you, Lord? And the reply came, I am Jesus who you're persecuting. So after meeting Jesus in this dramatic way, Saul is absolutely a changed man. And he goes about now taking the complete opposite stance that it is only by God's grace that anyone is saved. It isn't about keeping the law after all. So Saul began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues, teaching everyone that, that Jesus is the Son of God. And in Acts 9.22, it says, Saul became increasingly more powerful and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. And then, as I mentioned, Saul now started going by Paul, and he wrote, of course, three-quarters of our New Testament and the book of Romans that we're studying right now. So, my first and strongest observation as to why I hold view to um, is that Paul, that, that the view that Paul is describing his own experience under the law is the context. To me, this is huge. I counted in our chapter 7 the use of the word law, commandment, the old written code, 26 times. It's not that long of a chapter, 26 times. And so the subject here... <laughs> that really stands out to me is the law because of the sheer volume of mention. And so context coupled with also the tenses of the verbs in the preceding chapter 6 with the multiple statements of freedom from the power of sin. Look at them again. Um, but this time, pay attention to the, um, the tense of the verb. So we have died to sin. Past. Right? Done deal. Our old self was crucified with him, past, done deal. The body of sin is destroyed. That's kind of present, right? Ongoing. We are no longer enslaved to sin. 
present. We are freed from sin, present. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus, present. Sin will not reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion, passions, present, ongoing, I'd say. Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Well, we're taught all over we're not under law, we're under grace. So that is present. Those are some very strong statements. And just as it says that we're no longer enslaved to sin in Romans 6.6, Paul talks about it in the past tense in in 6.20, saying, when you were slaves of sin, and then Paul affirms the opposite in 6.22, but now that you've been freed from sin and enslaved to God, the advantage you get is sanctification. The end is eternal life. So then, fresh off of that, we come to this description of Paul's intense wrestling in the present tense of verses 14 to 25. After all those freedom statements of chapter 6, this section of 7 reverts to the language of slavery, at least to my ears, Um, Look at that paragraph again, and I highlighted some of the slave descriptions, sold into slavery under sin. I do not do what I want to do, but I do the very thing that I hate. The The end of the passage, I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin, bringing Paul to this state of wretchedness. And for me, this is, this is language of slavery. It is language of captivity. And it doesn't compute in my brain to Paul's present state. For example, why would Paul say in verse 6, we're no longer enslaved to sin, but then without missing a beat, turn around in verse 14 and say, I'm sold into slavery under sin. To me, that's a, such a direct and total contradiction. So my reasoning tells me that he can't be no longer enslaved to sin, and sold into slavery at the same time, and under sin at the same time. So these three reasons are why I believe that Paul is using himself as an example when he still lived under the law, um, as a past tense example of what it's like to be under slavery and that he had been set free from when he met Jesus. And if you look back at this paragraph, he lets us know that he's speaking of the law, I think, in the opening sentence when he says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold into slavery under sin. And then we also have to notice how the other side of the paragraph is bracketed um, to his own question in, in verse 24 when he says, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? But then he answers his own question in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it seems to me to, to um, then the next verse summarize the whole chapter seven, which is for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So you see after this um, interlude of this example of his past, he could be then returning to the present truth for, and, and he says, um, because remember paragraphs weren't, uh, I mean chapters weren't in the original manuscript, those were just kind of man-made. Um, he goes right on to say, for God has done 
what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled. In who? In us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And that's all I'm going to say about that because that's next week's passage and my partner and friend Carolyn Reed will pick that up next week. And she may even have a different view than mine. But what I'd like to leave you with as I finish my teaching stint for, for this year is that even if we can't all agree on the interpretation of Romans 7, I think we can all agree in breaking out in thanksgiving to God when we recognize the state from which he has rescued us. Amen? Amen. Amen. And secondly, whatever our view is of Romans 7, we, we must not use it to justify sin in our life. There's a woman that I know and love who justifies her substance addiction because, as she says, even the Apostle Paul struggled. Even the Apostle Paul struggled. problem with sin Paul did or didn't have. The passage is not intended, I hope you'll agree, to say that sin is okay for Paul or for us. We must never grow complacent about sin. God loves us, but he hates our sin. He hates sin and he hates what it does to us. And he has, I believe, given us every tool and the power to overcome. Lastly, in order to not sin, we have to live out of our righteous identity. But first, (laughs) we have to have the faith that he has given us a righteous identity. Faith. Faith is supposed to be normal for a believer. That's why they call us believers, right? Faith is supposed to be normal for us. And so we have to believe that we've been given the power to not sin in order to appropriate the power when we're tempted. 2 Corinthians, I was in 2 Corinthians a lot this week, just drawn there. You'll hear it a lot today, this morning. 2 Corinthians 4.13 says, But just as we have the same spirit of faith that is in accordance with Scripture, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we speak because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will bring us with you into his presence. Paul there is talking about faith. He says, I believed and so I spoke. And he's actually quoting a verse in the Old Testament there. There is power in our words, but that doesn't mean any words we decide to speak. It's not the name it and claim it thing I'm talking about. I'm going to get a check for $1,000 in the mail tomorrow at 4 (laughs) p.m. No. The real power of God is released when we speak the words that God speaks, 
right? When we believe what God says, and so we say what he says. I believe, and so I spoke. Jesus actually set that standard for us. He, he, said, he said, I only say what I hear my father saying. And, and, and do you remember what Jesus did when he was tempted? To sin. Jesus was tempted to sin, and what did he do? He quoted his father's word at the enemy. What a great example of I believed, and therefore I spoke. And I wonder, sadly, I wonder how many times in my own life could sin and its effects have been avoided if I had believed and therefore spoken God's word. For example, when tempted, what if I spoke God's word? Sin will not reign in my mortal body to make me obey its wonder too how many miracles have been aborted by faithless words that have come out of my mouth. Words like, I can't. Words like, this situation is hopeless. Faith does not mean that we don't have questions. Faith means that our heart remains united with God without immediate answers. Think about it. There has to be mystery or you won't have a life of trust, right? Bold faith is cultivated in the middle of mystery. And so I was so struck this week by another passage in 2 Corinthians 3, 12 to 14, because it affirms what we're learning here in chapter 7 and elsewhere in Romans about the law and its powerlessness to keep us from sinning. But faith in Jesus has the opposite effect. It has the opposite effect of freedom. Listen to this passage. Since then, we have such a hope, we act with great boldness, not like Moses, who put a veil over his face to keep the people of Israel from gazing in at the end of the glory that was being set aside, but their minds were hardened. Indeed, get this, to this very day, when they hear the reading of the Old Covenant, okay, that's the law, that same veil is still there, since only in Christ is it set aside. Indeed, to this very day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The opposite of slavery, freedom. Do you see the application for Romans 7? And Paul's increased sin under the law, as well as ours. There is a veil that is still there when we try to live under the law of Moses. We try to keep the law, the old covenant of the law. But Romans is teaching us that we are not under that law any longer, that we are under grace. And 2 Corinthians 3 just said that only in Christ 
Is the law set aside and that veil removed? And only then are we governed by the Spirit. I'm looking forward to next week where we'll get into Romans 8 and, and there so much about being governed by the Spirit. And with the Spirit, this, first, this, um, this uh, Second Corinthians verse says, there's freedom. Do you think that could mean freedom to not let sin reign in my mortal body to make me obey its passion? So my question to you and to myself is, do we have faith that Romans 6 is true? <laughs> that sin will not reign in my mortal body? Or do we believe that I am going to be in this losing wrestling match of constant inner conflict, such as Paul describes, for the rest of my life on earth? Because if that is what I believe, and if that is what I speak aloud over my life, I feel like I'm agreeing with the enemy who wants me to live caged, who wants me to live captive to sin, even though Jesus has opened the door of the cage. Our words have power. So do our beliefs. What if we have faith that God is who he says he is, that God will do what he says he'll do. God's, God's word is, now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. We have freedom in Christ when the veil is removed. We have freedom when we have his spirit. He says that sin will no longer reign in our mortal body to make us obey its passions. What if instead of believing sin will reign, we believe Jesus will reign in our mortal bodies? Yeah, let's do it. When that veil is lifted because we turn to the Lord, there is freedom. We are transformed to be like him. That means that our thoughts, our values, our priorities, our decisions all get recalibrated. He is what changes us. Our hard labor does not change us. Change for the better does not come from the law. The law does not curb sinful desires. In fact, the law causes more sinning. This is what today's passage says and adds about the law. While we were in the flesh, this is verse 5, the sinful passions aroused by the law, did you hear that? Aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But sin, verse 8 says, seizing the opportunity of the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Paul, I believe, had discovered what is true for every human being that when he or she truly gives law-keeping their best shot, they still fail. The law kills. The scripture says that Moses introduced a ministry of condemnation. That's in 2 Corinthians as well, 3, 7 to 9. A ministry of condemnation. <laughs> How do you want to be in that ministry? The point is, though, when fleshly effort tries to overcome sin, sin wins every time. And so that's why I see 
these verses as Paul's example of, of how one of the Ten Commandments, he uses the example of thou shalt not covet, that's one of the Ten Commandments, how that actually ignited sin in his life. Paul says he ended up struggling with coveting of every kind. You think about Saul of Tarsus. He had, if you know from studying Acts with us, he had an impeccable, polished exterior. He was zealous for the law, but inside, he tells us himself, he was guilty of wanting other people's stuff. Think about that. That's what coveting is. 2 Corinthians 3, 7 through 9, Paul says, Now if the, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on, on stone, of course that's the Ten Commandments, if that ministry came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? The ministry that brings righteousness is the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit's ministry. The Holy Spirit is mentioned 20 times in our next chapter. <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs> and so come back next week because we will learn that the obstacle to gaining victory during temptation has been in the way, that which, in, the way in which we've waged war. We've gone about it all wrong. When we arm ourselves with the law, we will fail every time. When it's anything but, the de but dependency on the Holy Spirit within us, it will inevitably lead to the angst that Paul experienced under the law. What you believe matters. That's what I leave you with today. Do you believe that Jesus purchased your freedom and your cage is open? And do you believe that freedom from sin's power is actually living right inside of you? Let me pray for us this morning. Oh Lord, as we, as we go to our discussion time, we ask for the balm of your Holy Spirit as we discuss, as we love each other in, in our discussing. Lord, thank you for the unity of your spirit. The same spirit in me is the same spirit in each and every one here who knows you. We thank you for that gift of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we thank you for freedom that you bought in the most difficult way imaginable. And you did it out of love. Oh, we just bask in that love, Lord, this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.